us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray now that by your Holy Spirit we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your holy word so that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Ruth chapter 3. What exactly happened there at the threshing floor? Well, it's the very heart of the gospel. Ruth chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, as we continue our journey through Ruth. Ruth 3, verse 1, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, my daughter, shall I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is Boaz not our relative with whose women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe where he lies. Then go uncover his feet and lay down. He will tell you what to do. And she said, all that you have said, I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Ruth went softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled. And he turned over and behold, there was a woman laying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth. She said, spread your, your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, since you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear for I will do for you all that you ask. For all my townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what exactly is going on here on the threshing floor? I will argue it's the center of the gospel. You cannot understand the good news of God in the book of Ruth if you don't understand what goes on here at the threshing floor. But it's so often misunderstood. So many modern interpreters see this as a very illicit, frankly, R-rated moment in the life of this story. I mean, it's true that the threshing floor in Hosea 9 is a place where prostitutes do gather at times. And it's true that uncovering the feet in Hebrew can be kind of a euphemism for uncovering everything else. And I mean, she does say, spread your wings over your servant, which seems to sound like something illicit is going on in that threshing floor. But we see it that way just because it can be read that way doesn't mean it has to be read that way. And I would argue historically shouldn't be read that way. See, the problem is we live in a 50 shades of gray culture. We live in a Game of Thrones culture. We live in a Bridgerton culture where we look at something and think if it sounds a little bit potentially euphemistic and illicit, it must be. 
Let me be clear. The Bible's not euphemistic much. If it wants to be clear about sex, it will be. Have you read Song of Songs? There's nothing euphemistic going on here. This is not salacious. This is actually a sweet, sweet moment. See, let's unpack what the text actually says quickly. If you, if you got your Bibles with me. Verse 3, she puts on her cloak. Some modern translators have said, ooh, she was dressed to kill. No, it's an evening cloak. She's going out at night. It's a standard cloak in Hebrew. Verse 7, when it says Boaz had eaten and drunk, it doesn't mean when his heart is merry that he is intoxicated. It literally means he is satisfied at the end of a day's work. Okay, so he's satisfied. When he lays down at the end of the heap of grain, he's not passed out, as some commentators would say. He's guarding his possessions. He's there guarding the grain from thieves. And let's be clear, in a few moments, he's going to have a lengthy discourse with Ruth where he sounds very lucid. I mean, if he was all schnockered, I mean, would it sound like he's got his sound mind about him? No. Verse 7 also, when it says that she uncovers his feet... Clearly, it takes a time before that has any effect because it says at midnight, verse 8, she, he is suddenly startled and turns over and, oh, behold, there's a woman laying at his feet. It takes a while for him to stir from this feet uncovering moment because she's not metaphorically uncovering his feet. She's actually uncovering his feet. She's using the cold air of the evening to slowly stir him awake so she can ask her question. And finally, of course, what does he call her in verse 11? He says, we all know that you are a worthy woman, right? That's the word virtuous. It's a Proverbs 31 word. He would not use that word to describe someone he was having an illicit moment with on the threshing floor. Now there's something else going on here. It's not salacious, it's sweet. What's going on at the threshing floor? What stands at the very center of the good news of this book? Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. That's what verse 9 means when he, she says, spread your wings over me. The wings are the edges of a garment. It's a, it's a direct call from Ezekiel chapter 16 that says, this is the language of marry me. Stretch your garment over me. In other words, the language of protection, of covering. E Ezekiel chapter 16 God himself speaks of Israel in this way. He says, when I came by Israel, he says, I saw that you were for the aged for love. And so I spread my garment over you and I made a covenant with you and I took vows with you and made you mine. This is the language of marriage. Clearly, Ruth knows what she's asking. Naomi knows what she's asking. Boaz knows what she's asking. We just mess it up in our interpretations. This is a proposal moment. And Naomi has carefully planned this out. I don't know about you, but in my own proposal, I didn't plan it well at all. Uh, I've told the story many times, but I'll tell you, the day the ring that I ordered arrived, I was terrified. I was 21 years of age. I'd never bought anything this expensive in my life. And I looked at this ring, this engagement ring. I, I knew I wanted to marry Monica, but I didn't know exactly when I was gonna pop the question. 
And it dawned on me, I didn't know where to put this ring. I mean, do I put it in my sock drawer? Like, where do I hide this thing that's worth so much? And so I said, I better just give it to her today. No planning whatsoever. I called her up and said, let's go out. And she said, okay. And so I picked her up and I said, let's go to the beach. We lived on an island. I said, we'll go to the beach. Beach is romantic. I'll figure this out. We'll just go with the flow. We're walking down the beach. I'm getting up the courage. And who do we see walking down the beach towards us? But her parents. And I'm not joking. I'm like what are they doing here on the same beach? And so I stuffed the ring back in my pocket and we chat and I try and get her away from her parents. She's like, like, why are you being so rude? We're hanging out with my mom and dad. I'm like, we need to go. And so we get into the car, we're driving around the car and and, and we're starting to get in an argument about how fast we left her parents. We're fighting. I've got a ring burning in my pocket. I'm like, this is ironic. And we went and got ice cream. I said, oh, the ice cream spot. That's a great place. We love that ice cream spot. But then there was all these weird, creepy people around the ice cream shop. I'm like, I'm not going to do this in front of a bunch of weird, creepy people. So we get back in my friend's Fiat and I'm like, I am not proposing in this ugly Fiat. So we're driving around and I thought there's a chessboard close by. There's this, like these giant chess pieces. That's kind of different, memorable, maybe romantic. So we drive up to the chessboard. She won't get out of the car. The story's coming to an end. She won't get out of the car because she says it's too cold. And I said, you need to get out of the car. And she's like, why are you being so weird? And I'm like, you need to get out of the car. So we walk up reluctantly to the chessboard and it's boarded up and graffitied and uglier than anything. And I said, I'm done, I'm done, I'm just gonna do this. And I pulled out this little matchbook because I used to send her little love notes on empty matchbooks. I know it's so cute, right? And it just says, will you marry me? And I, I held it up and she smacked me in the arm and said a bad word because she thought I was joking. She thought I was like having fun with her. And so I pull out the wedding ring, the engagement ring, and then she starts crying and she says, yes. It was the worst proposal story in history. I mean, the important thing is she said yes, but it was so unplanned and it went so badly in its execution. The ultimate solution was was the right one, but still, mercy. Naomi in contrast has planned this out brilliantly. If you do these things, Boaz will know exactly what you're asking. Verse four, he will know what to do, and he does. See, this is the center of the good news of this story, is this moment of Ruth asking Boaz not to have a casual relationship with her, not just to be friends, but to have a covenanted, lifelong relationship with her a vowed covenantal relationship. This is the heart of the story because as we find out, this story is not really about Boaz and Ruth. This story is really about God and us, about the way God relates to us. And so Ruth asks, but here's the amazing thing. Boaz accepts. Boaz says, yes. I mean, look at verse 11. He says, fear not, my daughter, all that you ask, I will do for you. All that you ask, like he's, I'm in. Now, in one sense, you've got to ask, why is Boaz accepting? Well, in one sense, he's doing what his job is. He is, as verse 9 says, a goel, a redeemer, she says. Spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Marry me because you're a redeemer. And I mentioned this last week, but this is a very technical job that he has. He's a senior patriarch within this family, And his job as given to him by the Lord is to be a goel, a redeemer. Sometimes it's translated kinsman redeemer. What this means is 
He is the guy in the family that when something goes wrong, you go to Boaz and he sorts it out. You go to your redeemer and he helps you. If you can't pay a debt, your redeemer, he'll help you pay the debt. If you end up in trouble, he'll help you out. And even if your husband dies in marriage and there's, when you're married and there's no op- opportunity for offspring to continue, your redeemer has to find some way that children can still be born to keep that legacy carrying on. So when Ruth goes to him, she's effectively saying, I know you've got an assigned role within this family, so I'm asking you to fulfill it. In one sense, he's saying, yes, he's accepting it because he knows his assigned role. I mean, it can seem rather bold, doesn't it? This Moabite woman, this foreigner, goes up to Boaz and says, marry me? I mean, isn't that a little bit presumptuous and bold? Don't think for a minute that she's not got tons of anxiety and worry going into this. I mean, what will he say? But she goes with boldness, even in the midst of all the uncertainty. Why? Because Ruth knows who she is. I am Ruth, your servant, she says. I'm a person in need. That's what Naomi says at the beginning. Will I not find rest for you? She's still restless. There's something still missing. Things have gotten so much better since the beginning of the book, but she still has need. She knows who she is. I am Ruth, your servant, and she knows who Boaz is, and you are the redeemer. You are the one that's divinely appointed by God to be in a way like God to me and my family. You are called to act on my behalf. And so, because I know who I am and who you are, I'm asking you to act accordingly. And he does, he acknowledges. Boaz knows who he is. Verse 12, I am a redeemer. That's my job. He gets it. You know, this is the way that God is with us as well. God is faithful to the declarations he's made about himself. God declares who he is and acts accordingly. God knows who he is. He invites us to know who he is, but he also knows who he is, and he acts accordingly. You know, it's interesting this week, Monica, uh, the girl who likes to smack and say bad words on the day of her proposal, um, Monica, as many of you know, broke her leg six months ago and has been recovering And through this long, ongoing recovery, and thank you for your continued support and prayers, um, one thing that she's been sort of working through is is the questions over what does my future look like because she was and is an EMT, trained for emergency medicine, and is really trying to work through this question of like, what's this going to look like? I mean, can I even jump out of ambulances anymore, even if I recover really, really well? And she was just this week working through some of these questions. And right this week, she's in McKinney, with our 17-year-old daughter in the vehicle, and they made a comment that the guy on the motorcycle in front of them was wearing a helmet. This was a good thing because it's so rare in Texas to see someone wearing a motorcycle with a helmet. And if any of you are offended by that comment, be offended. Put a helmet on, for goodness sake. So she had just made this comment, and suddenly the motorbike drove into the truck car in front of them, and, I mean, boots up went straight over the car. And so, of course, what did Monica do? She pulled over. She got my 17-year-old, our 17-year-old, to call 911. And she ran out there and started applying emergency medicine. And then the ambulance showed up, and they were a bunch of rookies. They didn't know what they were doing. So she started ordering them around and the firefighters. And she was in charge of the scene. She took charge. Why? Because that's who she is. That's the role she has. That's what she's been trained to do. And she knows her role, and so she lives into it. She didn't sit there in the car waiting for a few minutes going, you know, should I do something about this? Is there, 
Is there some involved? No, she knew immediately what to do because that's who she is. And so it is with God and his people. God knows who he is. And so when we come to him asking for help, he knows that he is the help for the helpless. He said it. He knows that he's come to bind up the broken. He's come to free the blind, to heal the sick, to save the world. I mean, you come to God and he's not gonna hesitate in responding the way he's declared himself to be. When you come with your sin, he says, I can deal with sin because Matthew chapter one, verse 21, his name shall be called Jesus because he'll save people from their sins. When people get lost, he goes, I I can handle lost people because he says in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. And when you wonder, will he ever forsake us? Will he ever tire of us? Will he ever stop fighting on our behalf? He says, no, no, no. I've already told you the steadfast, Lord of the, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. It's new every morning. Great is my faithfulness. See, God knows who he is and he acts accordingly. And so it is for Boaz. Boaz knows his role. Ruth knows the role. And so she is bold approaching him with this request. And so can we be bold coming to God, even in our timidity, say, oh Lord, I know I'm broken. I know I'm wounded. I know I'm weak, but I know that you have said this is who you are. He accepts partly because that's his role, his assignment. But here's the good news. It's even more than just He's got a particular role to play in this world. Boaz accepts her proposal because he's adored her from the very first. It's not just because he's begrudgingly saying, oh, well, yeah, I guess I am the redeemer. Okay, I guess I'll redeem you. No, Boaz adores Ruth and he has from the very first. We see how much he adores her in verse 10. Right in that one verse, you hear the entire gospel when he says in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. I mean, his immediate response to her ask is both immediate and intimate. You see immediacy and intimacy in how he responds. Immediacy in the sense that there's no hesitation, is there? There's there's no moment in the book where he sort of looks and says, well... Let me think about it. Let me get back to you tomorrow, Ruth. Well, I got I to pray about it. Think about it. No, immediately he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. Yes. It's like he's been waiting for this moment. I think he has. You know, there's a beautiful thing in scripture when we recognize that, yes, we're called to wait on the Lord, but do you ever recognize that God also is waiting on us? expectantly waiting on us. Isaiah chapter 30, he waits to be gracious to us. Like the father of the prodigal son, waiting and watching, saying, this moment is coming when this son of mine will come home. And that moment he walks in, I am gonna grab him and embrace him. No hesitation, immediacy. We see, we see right from the beginning of the story with Boaz and Ruth. In chapter two, the minute he meets her, he sees her. He sees this woman and her need. He secures her. He provides and makes sure his, his, his women are with her all the time so she's not attacked. He 
provides for her. He satisfies and serves her. He actually literally in chapter two gives grain to her from his own hand and just overwhelmingly blesses her. And this happens over a whole season. Uh, It says at the end of chapter two that she continued with Boaz's women through the whole of the barley harvest. In other words, day after day after day, she saw this man adore her. For, For what reason? Why would he show such affection for her? You see, all the way through, Boaz, from the beginning, has been adoring her. The immediacy of his response shows it. But also the intimacy. Listen to how he talks to her, how he speaks to her. You know, it's in chapter 3, Ruth is never referred to as a Moabite or as a foreigner. Nowhere in this engagement chapter is she referred to as a Moabite and a Foreigner. All the rest of the book she is, but in this engagement chapter, no. How does he refer to her? My daughter. Now, don't get weird by that. It means, it means I'm like a, a family member. I'm like an older member of the family. The point is, it's sweet. It's kind. It's intimate. He doesn't see all of the brokenness before him. He sees a woman. He sees an object of grace. And that's why she's not called a Moabite in this chapter. She's just my daughter. She's just Ruth. And so it is with God when he looks on us. You know, our challenge is that we may believe that God will save us and rescue us because he's got that assigned role. I mean, you are the savior, right? But do we believe that he does it Because he's adored us from the very beginning. He's adored us from the very first. You know, this week I was trying to sell our van that we imported from Canada. It was uh, was the van that we imported in here when we came. And I've told that story before how difficult that was. I think we could have got a koala bear imported easier than importing, importing a Honda Odyssey. Um, but we got it imported and that's great. And now we want to sell it and nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. CarMax won't even take it. Nobody will take it. Why? Because our van is bilingual. It speaks kilometers and miles because it's from Canada. Now, let me be clear. The speedometer does have miles on it. The miles are just small numbers and the kilometers are big numbers. But the odometer is the real problem. It just shows kilometers. And I'm like, it's simple, guys. It's a calculator. You calculate it, you can find the miles. Oh, no, no. It's not resaleable. Nobody wants my van. It's insane. It drives fine. I've done maintenance on it. Nobody wants it. I was at a car dealer yesterday. Finally, the guy's like, I think I'll maybe give you some money for it. I'm like, well, thank you so much. The problem, friends, is there's many days when I feel just like my van, I'm not sure that anyone's going to want me. And it's true for each and every one of us. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is outside of what you would expect of the possibility of salvation. And yet here is Boaz marrying her, accepting her, adoring her. You know, C.S. Lewis says, God does not love us because we're lovable. 
He loves us because he is love. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the Moabites. Every one of us adores us Moabites. So what happened on that threshing floor? It's the center of the gospel for this book. On that threshing floor, Ruth asked Boaz to marry her and he accepted it, not just because he had an assigned role, but because he adored her from the beginning. And friends, this is the heart of the good news of God for every one of us, that this is how God regards us, that we, like Ruth, have been brought to his field. We've come to know this God and his goodness. And in time, we begin to say, I think I want him to be my husband. I want to be his bride. And we ask, and he accepts, not just because he's the Savior, but because he's adored you from the very beginning. Can you hear it? The question is, has you asked? Now, for those of you who raised in the Bible church, you know this is the altar call moment, right? right? This is the moment where I'm going to walk you through a prayer. We're going to say, sorry, sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross. And please come into my life. And that's good. But here's the thing. Uh, people have asked me, they said, you know, you guys don't do altar calls very often. I said, we don't? I thought we did one every week. Like, come to the altar and receive. And they go, oh, I mean, I mean an altar call. I said, what other kind is there? Where do you think they got the altar from? I haven't seen an altar in many Bible churches. We've got an altar. Every week, come to the altar. And you say, come on. I mean, you got to make a commitment. That's what we do every week. Every week in our liturgy. If, if you today feel that stirring in your heart that God is grabbing a hold of you with his goodness today and you're saying, I think I've never actually made a commitment to Jesus. I think I maybe want to ask him. I want to I be like Ruth and ask him to marry me. Then today's the day. And, and, and what follows will walk you through that. Secondly, you may say, oh, I've done that before, but it's been maybe a while since I've really had a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And you say, I feel like I want to ask again. I want to ask afresh. Well, again, what follows, you can do that too. And, and for everyone else, you know, I don't know what kind of week you had, but it's going to have ups and downs. And you're going to, on a regular basis, need to say, I think I need to ask Jesus afresh to come and be the Lord of my life, to come and be my husband, to come and lead my life. And you get that opportunity too, because here's what follows every time. Every week, do you know what follows? What follows the proclamation of God's word every week? We tell the gospel again. And then we stand together in a moment and we affirm the gospel. We actually spell it out in the creed. Here's what we believe. Here's the goodness of God. Affirm it. And then we come to prayer. And in the prayers, we're going to come to a point where we acknowledge how much we've fallen short of this, how much we've moved away from God, either never been with him or moved away this week. And so we acknowledge that sin. And then we ask, we say, oh Lord Jesus, would you forgive me because of your death on the cross? And would you empower me by your spirit? I'm asking, Lord, come back into my life afresh. And then we hear those words of absolution. You are forgiven. Hallelujah. And then we stand 
And we receive those words of assurance. You know, when I say to you or Father Jonathan or Father John or someone says, the peace of the Lord be always with you, that's not the moment we just are stretching our legs. That's gospel assurance. Because of you asking for redemption, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then we come to the table. We have our altar call. And we put out our hands and say, Lord, thank you for bringing me back to your table to your marriage supper. This is the altar call that we play out every week. Every week responding. Every week being called. Ask again, the Lord is saying. Ask for me again. And you know the answer. You know the answer. It's the same as Boaz's answer in verse 11. When you ask the Lord to come into your life for the first time or for the thousandth time, his answer will always be as verse 11 says. And now... My child, fear not, for I will do for you all that you ask. I will come into your life. I will be your husband. I will be devoted to you because I adore you. And so friends, let us today, as we walk through the next few moments of this service, recognize that this, like every week, is our time of response our time of response to the good news of God in Jesus Christ, that you are, you are adored, that God has an assignment to be your savior and he's brought you to this moment that you would ask again. So let us ask and let us hear again those words of assurance in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.